Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Just before I start, it's Hebrews chapter 2, not 12. And I'm going to be reading that from the King James Version. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honour and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same manner, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham." Wherefore, in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succour them that are tempted. So with that, we'll introduce the first study with our brother, John Launchbury, and his study will be Shane us not not God so our brother John thanks good well good morning everyone he uh, had fun last night all pretending to be someone who we're not so I guess today we uh, we get to be who we really are and we get to think about who our Lord is and uh, how we work in conjunction with him I'd like to, before we get on to um, today's study in particular, like to think a little bit about the principles that we picked up yesterday in the, um, in the memorial service. Yesterday, we were really trying to focus on the notion of the humanity of Christ, to realize that he's someone just like us. So the humanity of Christ, to find out that he was someone just like you, just like me. And um, we spent a lot of time thinking about what that meant in terms of the, the real kind of temptations that he faced. And we came up with two principles that are there in your notes. The first one is actually um, a little uh, messed up the way it got printed. Jesus was tempted just like us. That's an absolutely fundamental principle. It means that the same propensity to sin that you have, he had. It's kind of shocking to say it like that. But he was struggling the same struggles that you struggle. He was facing the same challenges. He had the same difficulties. 
The second one, however, is a difference between him and us in that he succeeded, he overcame all temptation. I think as we start to think about the work of Jesus and the, the salvation, it's really important to keep these two principles in mind. And we can, we can deduce some things from these principles. For example, let's, let's suppose I ask a question. Is it theoretically possible for a human being to go through their whole life and not sin? And I think sometimes our gut reaction is, no, it's not. It's not theoretically possible. But Jesus shows that that's wrong. Jesus shows that it is theoretically possible for a human being like us to go through the whole of his life and not sin. You might say, well, I don't understand that because I find it so hard. I find it so hard to overcome the sin that that is there with me, that, that leads me astray, the temptations that have me do things that I, I don't want to do, and yet I go and do them. So I think we have to conclude, not that it's theoretically impossible for human beings to go their whole life without sinning, but that it's just tremendously difficult. It's so difficult, in fact, that there's only been one human being who has ever accomplished that, and he was God's son. And the way I think it's good to think about this is, I could ask a question like, um, and I'm going to use imperial measures, is it theoretically possible to run a three-minute mile? You could do the math, you could look at leg muscles and, and tendon strengths. You could probably conclude, yes, it's theoretically possible for a human being to run a three-minute mile. How many human beings do you know that have run a three-minute mile? Not many, like none. So just because something is theoretically possible doesn't mean you know a dozen people who have done it last week. And in fact, if you, if you take the fastest time that people have actually achieved, it's closer to four minutes unless I'm way out of date. Maybe it is. I mean, are any of you sports people? Do people run three-minute miles? 3.43, thanks. Okay. There's still 43 seconds short. You know, just a couple of sins, and you're still condemned. 43 seconds, it's still not under three minutes. So Jesus was, you, you should think of him as an incredibly endowed runner who takes the world by storm. How does this guy do it? How is he built? He's just a human being, and yet he manages to accomplish this. And then we might say, well, if Jesus can do something like this, if he can live his whole life without sinning, and I know that I fail, I can't run a four-minute mile, a six-minute mile, I guess, these days. I used to be able to. Um, I can't run a four-minute mile. Does that mean it's unfair that, well, Jesus was given capabilities and abilities that, that, that I'm not given? There's a great parable that he told about this, of, of the talents. One servant was given five talents, one servant was given two, another was given one. The one with five, look what he accomplished. Look what he accomplished with the talents that his father gave him. And as we look at the life of Jesus, and I hope that you got this from the exhortation yesterday, as we look at his personal integrity and commitment, we end up coming away thinking, there's nothing unfair here. In fact, the unfairness is in the other direction, that such a heavy burden was laid on this man. Sure, he was given five talents, and we're only given two, perhaps. But look what he did with it. So I think it's really important, as I say, as we think about the um, sacrifice of Christ, to recognize he was just like us, the same kind of person, the same kind of human being. And so if somebody comes up with a theory about salvation, a theory about how the atonement works or, or the mechanism by which we're saved, that leads to the conclusion that says Jesus was therefore different from us, we have to reject it. I'm a mathematician, and there's a, a proof technique in mathematics called, um, it's in logic as well, reducto ad absurdum. What that says is, um, no, actually, it's not that one. It's the, uh, you'll, you'll now doubt that I'm a mathematician. It's the contrapositive one, where you start off and you say, I'd like to prove something, so what I'll do is I'll start with the negative of it, and I'll see where that leads me. 
So I'll start with um, some proposition which I'm expecting to be false, and I'll, li- I'll follow the conclusion, and eventually, if I get to a blatant contradiction, this thing that I started off assuming, if it leads to a contradiction, then it must be wrong. And so if we start off with a theory about salvation, a theory about the atonement that leads to the conclusion that Jesus was different from us, then we have a contradiction because we read something like the verse that we just read in Hebrews chapter 2, and perhaps you get your Bibles and open, open it up again, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. It's just very powerful. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. That's as clear a statement as you can hope to get about who Jesus was. He shared in our humanity. He was a human being just like us. And notice the link with flesh and blood there. The emphasis that the writer to the Hebrews is giving is the children have flesh and blood, and Jesus likewise has flesh and blood. He too shared in our humanity. In John's letter, he says it even more powerfully. Uh, This is in 1 John and chapter 4. The first letter that John wrote, chapter 4, he says, verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now here's the key verse, verse 2, 1 John 4, verse 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. That phrase, come in the flesh, means the flesh. The flesh with all of its natural tendencies. It's a fundamental teaching, says John, that Jesus came in the flesh. It's not saying that he was physically here, that he was an angel physically come down from heaven or anything like that. It's not saying that. It's saying he was flesh and blood like you and me. He was a human being. He was the same as us. An absolutely fundamental teaching. So as you as, as I say, the purpose of these studies is to get you to think about the whole notion of the atonement, the whole notion of the sacrifices of Christ. As you think about them, just bear this fundamental principle in mind. Jesus is just like us. Um, one of the things before we move on, I'd like you to perhaps consider in your discussion groups is how did he accomplish it? If we conclude that Jesus was just like you and me, how did he accomplish it? You see a pianist up on the stage, concert-level pianist, maybe even 15 years old, 16 years old, and you think, how did this individual accomplish this? You start asking questions like that, and then you get a choice. Do I want to walk down a similar road? Or do I want to walk down a different road? So that's a great topic to think about in your discussion groups. How did Jesus accomplish this? And it's paired with another one. How did God accomplish it? You see, it wasn't all down to Jesus. Jesus wasn't just thrown out of a family and trying to find his way and suddenly discovered God and this was the way forward. God was working with him from before his birth. What was it God did in his life? to enable, to encourage, to bring him to a point where he could tune his will perfectly to his father's will. So those are some um, things, Hope uh, perhaps the discussion leaders have noted those down that we can talk about in in discussions. So now today what I'd like to do is move on to um, the fundamental uh, principle for today, which is the notion of changing us, not God. There's lots of theories about the the death and resurrection of, of Christ. There's lots of theories about atonement or salvation, which when you boil it down, conclude that there was something wrong with God, that God needed to change, that God's situation was in a bad way and something had to be fixed. And what we'll do today is really explore that and explore how strongly the Scripture says that everything about the sacrifice of Christ was designed to change us, not to change God. There's nothing wrong with God that requires um, change. So here's a, here's a great question that, that's worth 
mulling over. Why did Jesus have to die? I spent a long time mulling over this question. When I say long time, I mean 10, 15 years mulling over this question. Why did Jesus have to die? And then I realized that there was a kind of assumption built into this question that may not be correct. Why why do I mean have to die? That's perhaps the wrong question. That, That perhaps says that there's some legalistic requirement that was on him. So I think a better question to ask is simply, why did Jesus die? And then we can look at whether it was actually fundamentally necessary. We can look at why God asked it of him, all these sorts of things. And those are derived questions rather than the part of the question itself. And so this question about why did Jesus die, it's a very challenging question. Um, when, I, when I agreed to do this series of Bible studies here at uh, Brisbane, um, I said, yeah, I've been working on this notion of the principles underlying salvation. I'd like to talk about that. And then I sat and thought about it. I realized communities have been split over this topic. What am I thinking of coming here and talking about this? And so I know I'm running a risk by talking about this. But what I'd like to do is just have us really think carefully about the things that are are there in Scripture. It is a subject that people get very um, sensitive about. It's a very important subject because of that. It's a challenging topic. Um, I exhort you to remember what we talked about both on Saturday and yesterday. This is holy ground. This is the death of God's Son that we're talking about. And if there's any subject that we more requires us to come to it in humility to say, this is going to be way beyond me, Father. This surely is a, a subject. This is a subject for us to unite around, not for us to divide over. This is a subject for us to explore with, with a sense of wonder, a sense of marvel, not a sense of saying, no, I, I reject this and I disagree with that. But it is nonetheless a central question. We should be able to answer it simply, plainly. Why did Jesus die? Why did God require it of him? There's perhaps a related question. Could there have been salvation without the death of Jesus? And our gut response, of course, is no, of course not. But I'd like us not to just go to those gut responses. I'd like us to take a little more time to to rebuild the whole notion of salvation from the ground up, to think about it, to clarify our understanding. I had the previous um, question up there, why did Jesus have to die? And when you ask the question that way, it can lead you down some bad routes. It can lead you to think in terms of um, God having to be appeased in some sense, that there was something that was out of whack with the universe, with the spiritual universe, and it required a blood sacrifice. And and this is a a commonly held understanding, um, and and even sometimes uh, comes into our community. There's a, a, a word that occurs in the King James Version, which is very unhelpful here. It's the word propitiation, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. The idea of propitiation is that of appeasement, as if the death of Christ in some sense appeased God, that he had every right to be angry, but Christ died, and he said, oh, all right, I won't be angry after all. The idea of of pacifying or appeasing, you, you get a picture of a parent who's angry with a child, and the child figures out, well, if I do such and such, if I wash the dishes or something like that, then maybe it'll make my parent happy. And that's not how salvation works at all. Salvation works completely the other way around. God is angry with us naturally. There's no doubt about that. But he's like a loving parent who sees his child do something that will lead to the child's death. And so he reaches out and he tries to do things. He disciplines the child. Now, discipline is one of those scary words. Discipline and disciple are are the same ideas. Jesus disciplined the disciples. That doesn't mean he bent them over his knee and gave them a wallop. It means that he did things with them that disciplined them, that gave them discipline. And that's what our Father does with us. Coming here this week is part of the discipline of God. You're being discipled by each other, by the studies, by the prayers, by the hymns. All of these kinds of things are part of the the, uh, discipline of God. 
One of the challenges that we have when we look at the, um, the death of Christ and read scriptures is that we tend to read a phrase and interpret it in a fixed way, even though the words might not demand that particular, particular way of thinking about it. Let me give you an example. Suppose I said, do you believe in God? You would say, what is this question? This question says, do I think that God exists? Is that fair? Is that question, do you believe in God? You would interpret to mean, do you believe God exists? And then you would weigh up, do I believe God exists? Yes, no, and, and you'd come to your own conclusion. Suppose I said, do you believe in the government? Suddenly, it's a different question. You're not, you, you, I'm presuming you wouldn't say, do I believe that the government exists? It's all too clear that the government exists. The question is, do I trust the government? Do I believe in the capabilities of the government? Do you notice exactly the same phrase, do I believe in, we might interpret to be something about does the thing exist or the person exist, or we might interpret it, do I have trust in that person? Do I have trust in the uh, capabilities of that organization? And so when we think about the phrase, do you believe in Jesus Christ, you need to ask yourself, am I just simply saying, do you believe he existed then and that he exists now? Or am I asking a different question, which is, do you believe that he's able to help you, that he will support you? Do you trust in Jesus Christ, would be the other way of interpreting the question. And so as we read a number of scriptures, we're going to be challenged not to just interpret them in the very sort of natural, rote way that we may have been looking at them in the past, but be, be willing to go and, and really examine the words and see what, what's going on. Let me give you a few examples of some verses which, if we just take them in their rote way, can, can lead us astray. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. And actually, I'll look at verse 9 as well. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. And I'm deliberately going to just read phrases. I'm using the New International Version, by the way. Um, I've used it um, for 25 years or more. I love it, but it has its problems. And um, I'll point out some of the places it has its problems. Mind you, I don't know a version that doesn't have its problems. Verse 9 of Romans 5 since we now have been justified by his blood, and I'll pause there, we have been justified by his blood. And so, if we're thinking blood sacrifice, we think, well, we, were, we had sins against us, Jesus died, now we don't have sins against us. That would be a natural way for our minds to run on this. Um, how about verse 10? When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, almost sounds as if D Jesus dying, snap your fingers, we're reconciled to God. It's as if there's a, a mystical or magical process that, that's in, in play there. Uh, let's look at um, one in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. Remember, as, as you turn it up, the point I'm trying to make here is that there are lots of scriptures that we're going to have to look at very carefully and not simply jump to... Um, uh, standard conclusions from uh, as, as we look at these scriptures. Hebrews 10 and verse 14. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. On the face of it, it sounds as if the sacrifice of Jesus happened, and again, snap your fingers, and we're all holy. I mean, that's, that's what the verse would seem to be saying unless we start digging in a little bit more deeply. I'll do one, one other. Hebrews chapter 9, it may be on the same page for you, verse 22, the last half of the verse. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hmm. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That almost sounds... And I've heard Christadelphians say this, that almost sounds as if there's a principle being laid down here for all time that says God cannot forgive unless blood is shed. That's what it sounds like. What I'd like to show is that, is that that's not the case, or at least 
that's not the fundamental principle that we start from. We may, I mean, I'm not saying I disagree with that scripture. Of course, I, I don't disagree with the scripture. It's like one of the verses, for example, Jesus was led into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The first way of thinking about that is this little guy with horns and a tail. And you have to think about it a little more carefully. You have to square it with the rest of Scripture to understand what's really going on. I had a friend once who said, it was vital for Christ to be sinless to gain salvation. It's not so important for us because we're saved by faith, not by works. And what was most scary about when he said that was that the state of my thinking at that time, I thought, oh yeah, that's kind of plausible. And yet it goes absolutely against the teaching of Scripture. A lot of those kind of ideas come from a notion of substitution. Here's substitution theory, and um, a lot of your friends will, um, if they're going to evangelical churches or, or Church of England or, or Catholic, will, um, if they've thought about the death of Christ or follow the teachings of their church, will ascribe to this substitution theory um, and, and it works in, a, in quite a simple way. It says that in Eden, God laid down a law. He said, the wages of sin are death. I mean, he didn't say it in those terms. That's, that's Romans. But he said, in the day that you sin, you will die. But Adam and Eve didn't die in that day. And in fact, God left many sins unpunished in some sense, in that when we sin, God doesn't immediately say, okay, that's it, that's death. So what substitution says is you've had all of these crimes committed, these sins committed, whose ultimate punishment is death. Somebody has to pay for them, otherwise God's justice is, is negated. God has said death is a penalty here. If he says, oh, well, I've changed my mind, death isn't a penalty, it would negate his justice. Jesus, under the substitution theory, volunteered to be that person to, to suffer death. Let me do it as a parable. <coughs> there was a, <clears throat> a man with two sons, older and younger son. Circus was coming to town at the end of the week. And the father said to his children, if you boys behave really well this week, then come Saturday, I'll take you to the circus. And so during that week, the older brother behaved himself immaculately, superbly well. The younger brother, well, you couldn't say immaculately. In fact, he didn't behave himself at all. He was messing around. He was, he was doing all sorts of things. Come Saturday, the father is weighing up the situation. And he says, I'd dearly love to be able to take my sons to the circus. And yet they have violated the thing that I said that they need to do. You, you, the younger son has been misbehaving. And the younger son is, is stricken with, with remorse on this. and says, oh, Father, is, is, is there no way that you could take me to the circus? I'm, I'm really, really sorry. And the father is in a complete bind until the older brother says, You know what, Father? I'll stay home. I'll bear the punishment. And you can take my younger brother. And so the father then is able to take the younger brother. So that's the, that's the theory of substitution. And on the face of it, it's rather compelling that we have sinned, that there's no way we deserve to live, yet God is desperate to give us the kingdom. And we come to him in sorrow and in tears, and we say we're sorry that we have sinned. And he says, but what can I do about it? My word has to stand. And his son says, I will bear their punishment and so he bears our punishment, enabling God to have us in the kingdom. As I say, on the face of it, it's compelling. <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't fit with Scripture. There's a lot of deep problems with the theory. And what I'd like to do is show some of those problems. So the first problem is with respect to justice. In what sense is it just for one person to bear the, the punishment of another? You do something that's wrong, and so instead of taking it out on you, I take it out on someone else. What justice is there? Justice isn't demanding that this, be pun this punishment be meted out. 
Justice demands that this, pers- this punishment be meted out on this person. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just not just to, to take a punishment that is due to one person and to inflict it on another. And so to claim that substitution, in some sense, upholds the justice of God, it, it, it makes no sense. Substitution denies the justice of God. There are many scriptures which call out, will the, will the God of the whole earth not do what is right and just? And substitution is not right. It's not just. There is no legal system by which somebody should bear someone else's punishment like this and call it justice. There's another problem to do with the penalty. The wages of sin is death, being dead. It's not that the wages of sin is dying. It's not the process of going from life to death that is the wages of sin. It's being dead is the wages of sin. If you commit your life to sin, to doing things that reject God, reject one another, then ultimately the wages of that is eternal death. And so if Jesus took Adam and Eve's and our punishment, why isn't he still dead? Because the wages of sin is death. Jesus tasted death. That was all. It's like somebody being committed to jail for a life sentence, and and if you could get your head around the bizarre injustice of someone else saying, well, I'll serve their life sentence, and they go in for the weekend. They're not even bearing the sentence. They're not even bearing the penalty. Here's another problem with it. The notion of forgiveness. So suppose, um, suppose Michael owes me $100, okay? And, and I'm demanding that he pay it of me. Someone else says, you know what, John, I'll give you the $100 for Michael. So someone else gives me, pays off Michael's debt, gives me the $100. Should I now go to Michael and say, Michael, I forgive you the $100 you owe me? doesn't make sense, because somebody has paid. He doesn't owe me $100. I've been paid. And yet the scriptural teaching is very clear that we have a sin debt before God that gets forgiven, that gets taken away. It's not being paid for. It's there until God says, I will wipe this out. I will take it away. And there's one other problem with it. And that's the problem of focus. You see, when we think about substitution, we think that the problem is there with God. God wants to do something, but he has got himself into a bind. And so the death of Jesus is a way for God to get get himself out of his legal troubles. And yet what we'll see, and what the fundamental principle of today's talk is, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ, was there to change us, not to change God. It was to make us different. It was not to make God different. So let's lay substitution aside, and let's start to explore what's really going on with the, um, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I had a, um, a personal insight here many years ago when I read a beautiful little book by Brother Alan Eyre called Brethren in Christ. And it was a book talking about believers like us somewhere around, it was somewhere around the 1500s, and I'm sorry I'm a little vague as to, to when it was. Um, and he was talking about um, a believer like us, uh, a man called Bernardino Ochino. I don't know if I've pronounced his name right. He got into a lot of trouble with the ruling church at that time for, and this is quoting Alan's words, for denying that Jesus died as a substitute and demonstrating that the real purpose of the death of Christ was not to change God, but to change us. And that, when I read that, I suddenly thought, oh yeah, I can now start to put things in place that I could never put into place before. Because I had always thought about the death of Christ in terms of fixing something with God, or fixing some legal difficulty, or fixing some sense of justice. But this, and I'll call him a brother, this brother Bernardino, 
said no. It wasn't about fixing something with God. It wasn't about, and this is the terms they used in those days, paying off the devil. It was about changing us. So let's look at some scriptures, and we'll look at uh, a few of these, where we see the emphasis on changing us. We'll start with John chapter 4. Sorry, John chapter 14. John chapter 14. This is after the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples are just leaving the upper room. I love the way the NIV translates this, this verse, by the way. Uh, Verse 31. The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. If you want the declaration of the purpose of the crucifixion in one verse, that's it. And it's said just a few hours before Gethsemane. Jesus is literally leaving the upper room. He's going to go with the disciples through the streets of Jerusalem, down, cross the Kidron Valley, walk up the Mount of Olives, and he's going to pray about the day that's coming. And he says, at that point, the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what the Father has commanded me point I want to get from it now is that the world must learn. That's you and it's me. That's what he wants us to learn from this. And that means that we're changing. It's not that God must see that I do exactly what he he wants me to do. It's that we have to see it. Look at Haggai. Haggai is always one of those uh, books which is nerve-wracking for a speaker as you're trying to turn, and you think, where is it, where is it, where is it? But it worked quite well this time. Haggai, it's about the fifth book from the end of the Old Testament. Haggai chapter 3 and verse 11. Here's a, a principle that comes from the law of Moses. Haggai is examining this thing in the law of Moses, and he says... This is what the Lord... Have you found Haggai? I tell by the rustling of pages that the Haggai is eluding some of you. Uh, chapter 3 is eluding you. It would indeed. It's chapter 2. <laughs> yeah, I have a special extension in my Bible. <laughs> Haggai chapter 2 and verse 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. That's a principle from the law of Moses. If you have something which is set apart from God, for God, consecrated, this bread, this, this meat, whatever, I'm going to give it as a gift to God. It's going to be holy for him. Pun on the word holy there. It's going to be holy for him. And then it touches something unclean. What happens under the law is that the holy thing becomes defiled. It's not that the clean it's not that the unclean thing, the dead body or whatever, becomes holy. So defilement sort of carries a carries across. And yet what happens when Jesus comes up to a leper, a leper defined by the law, was unclean because of the spread of disease that would come from there. Jesus comes up and he touches the leper. Jesus, who is set apart for God, who is holy, the leper who under the law is unclean. If nothing were to happen, Jesus would become unclean. But in the times when Jesus does it, what happens? The leper changes. The leper is now different from what he was before. The leper has become clean. And so when you get the 
purity of Christ and the uncleanness of the law, you find that the law or or the, the, the leper, the person like us who is under sin, who is under condemnation of death, if we change, if we become different, we then become clean. But it's not that the leper stayed a leper and Jesus stayed Jesus and they all went on their merry way afterwards. Either Jesus becomes defiled or the leper becomes clean. And with the uh, healing that he did, we see that the leper becomes clean. So again, we see an example of the change that takes place when the the holy things meet the unholy things. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is easier to find than Haggai, and I'm sure it has a chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 22, so this is a a possible um, challenge verse at first, if we just look at 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That sounds like a snap your fingers kind of salvation, but in verse 23 it makes it quite clear, if, if you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope of the gospel. That is, the death of Christ is able to present you in a way that is pure if you participate, if you allow your faith to rule your life, if you allow the things of God to, to manifest themselves in, in, your, in your eyes. So, you have to change. Otherwise, the the work of Christ uh, doesn't accomplish anything. And then finally, let's look at 1 Peter as another example of, of changing. 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. Similar sort of principle. 1 Peter 2 verse 21. It's talking about enduring punishment just because you're a Christian um, and, and bearing up for it. To this you are called, verse 21, 1 Peter 2, because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And that's really important, this notion of um, continuing and following in the, in the steps of Jesus. So let me sort of uh, conclude where we are just at the moment, and let me say in as plain a language as I'm able to, that I'm convinced that the actual physical death of Jesus released no magic principle, no mystical principle for salvation. But I think that what it did was, A, it has an effect on us. We respond to it in a particular way and are able to respond to God. And it had a profound, uh, res- uh, a profound effect on the completion of Christ himself, and the development of Christ himself, which also is key to salvation and we'll return to to those later on. So let me say it again. I'm convinced that the actual physical death of Christ by itself didn't release a mystical principle that suddenly made the, the universe a different place, except for the way that it affects us and the way that it affects Jesus himself. So, Whenever we start thinking about the things of God, uh, the things of salvation, and we start thinking about, well, does salvation work this way or that way, we have a natural tendency to, to fall into the some, somewhere near a substitutionary camp which says, well, the problem was with justice, or the problem was with the way God had set things up that he couldn't forgive, or, and, and it's requiring a change on God's behalf. What I'd like to do is shift that, that uh, lever, that, that um, needle across and say, no, whenever we look at it, we should be asking ourselves, how does this aspect of salvation demand a change in us? Let's take as a fundamental assumption that God doesn't need to change. Let's take as the assumption that we are the ones that need to change. We are the ones that need to be fixed. And so, this is where the change meter should be. So, this was the principle I knew hopefully have got it by now because I've belabored it for about half an hour. The death of Jesus was to change us, not God. So let's now start asking some some questions. What about blood? 
After all, we looked at that verse in Hebrews 9. Let's go back there. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. This surely is is clearer than, than anything else. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I think the King James has something like, um, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Or, uh, yeah, so, I can't hear the mutters. No remission of sin. Okay. And yet, on the face of it, that says, unless blood is spilt, God can't remit sin. God can't forgive sin. So, as ever, we need to look a little more at the context. Look at the whole verse now. The whole verse says, in fact, the law, this is talking about the law of Moses, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Oh, that's interesting. Instead of our first assumption that what the writer to the Hebrews um, was doing was laying down an axiom, a fundamental principle, what we suddenly realize he's doing is he's looking at the law of Moses and he's deriving a fact about the law of Moses. In fact, he derives two facts about the law of Moses. The first is that nearly everything in the law of Moses had to be cleansed with blood. And the second is, in the law of Moses, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Now, you and I could also look at the law of Moses, and we would equally come to exactly the same conclusion. That indeed, the law of Moses, in lots of occasions, required blood to be shed in order to clean things, which is a beautiful kind of paradox. Uh, You wouldn't imagine washing things in blood as being a great way to clean them. And in the law of Moses, if you wanted to forgive sin, you brought an animal and you slew it. So suddenly, rather than being a fundamental principle, we realize that it's simply a fact about the law of Moses. And so, as with everything else in the law of Moses, we have to say, what does it mean? When we think about the Ark of the Covenant, we ask the question, what does it mean? We don't believe today that you have to have the Ark of the Covenant in order to be forgiven. What did it mean? What was the seven-branch lampstand? What did that mean? The table of the showbread. All of these symbols from the law of Moses, we ask ourselves, what do they mean? What is the fundamental truth that is being taught here? So, I'm hoping you know the answer to this next question. What does blood symbolize in the law of Moses? Life. Did you all know that? Nod, shake, keep your heads dead still. Some of you may have known it, some of you may not. In the law of Moses, blood symbolizes life, and that's actually well explained in Leviticus. And so, when we look at the law of Moses, we notice that shedding of blood is required for cleansing, for forgiveness of sin. That is, the principle that the law of Moses is teaching is that the giving of life is required. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on. It's not about spilled blood per se. It's much richer than that. Have you given your life to the work of God? That's what it's about. It's about living sacrifice as well as about Jesus giving the whole of his life. And we'll focus on on that concept a lot more tomorrow. So, blood per se, we can lay to one side and say, the real issue is life. Is my life given over to God? Is it devoted to God? Is Christ's life given over, devoted to God? So, I said we'd come back to this word propitiation, which is an awful word, and I'm going out on a limb a little bit here, but um, uh, I strongly feel that this is not the real concept that that the Bible is trying to get across. The notion of propitiation, if you look it up in the dictionary, is about appeasement or placation. God is angry. The death of Jesus was the thing that made him calm down. And I I put it in those terms uh, to, to make it a little extreme. 
Now, there's, um, uh, it, there's a couple of Greek words, uh, hilaskomai, hilasmos, and hilasterion, which um, are used, uh, sometimes translated as propitiation, sometimes translated using other words. So what I'd like to do is look at all six of these occurrences. Two, these each occur twice in the New Testament. And just see that there's another concept sitting there which is, which is much more at the root of it. And for me, the, the most beautiful one is the time Jesus uses it himself in Luke. In Luke chapter 18, he gives the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee goes and he prays about himself, to himself, um, I thank you that I'm not like other men, I'm very religious and I'm a, I'm a good man. Thank you, God. The, um, the publican, however, wouldn't even look up to heaven. He was ashamed as he came into the presence of God. And he, he smote himself on the breast. And he said, God, be thou merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the word. That's the word that sometimes in the King James is translated propitiation. Notice here, mercy is absolutely the right concept. The tax collector is not saying, can I do something to appease you, God? He's throwing himself on God's mercy. He says, I have nothing to offer except that I'd like you to be merciful to me. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, that man went up from there forgiven. Not the Pharisee. That man who threw himself on God's mercy. So what, what I'd like to do is take this idea of mercy and look at it, put it in the other, in the other passages where those same words occur. And um, the point that I'm making here is Jesus is not there to placate God because, again, the change meter has swung back to God. Jesus is there to be our route to mercy, to draw us into God's mercy. So let's see how that works out in the, in the various other verses. Here's a couple of them. Romans 3.25, whom God set forth to be mercy. Jesus is there as the mercy of God. God set him there as our mercy, as the root by which we gain forgiveness, through faith in his blood to show his righteousness. In Hebrews... Hebrews 2.17, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make mercy for the sins of the people, to draw us who are sinners into God's mercy. See, in each case, it's not about changing God, placating God, propitiation before God. It's not about that. It's about what it's doing with us, drawing us into the mercy of God. God doesn't need to change. We're the ones that need to change. Hebrews 9 verse 5, I think this is exactly as it is in the King James Version, talks about the cover on top of the atonement, uh, on top of the um, Ark, of the Aton uh, Ark of the Covenant, and it calls it the mercy seat. The translators of the King James realize you shouldn't call it the propitiation seat. It's the seat it's where God's presence is, where he gives mercy to the people. 1 John 2 verse 2, Jesus is the mercy for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He's the mechanism by which God is able to show us mercy, and we have to understand how is it that, that, that we are able to receive the mercy that God is showing through that. And, and similarly, 1 John 4 verse 10, he loved us, he sent his son to be mercy for our sins. So, the death of Christ is meant to change us, not God. Now, I'm running out of time, but I'd like to just um, spend a few moments on another principle which I think is, is very important, and it's quite closely related. God works to reassure us in the various things that he does with respect to salvation. Let me give a, an example of this. When we... When we realize who we are, when we realize our position before God, when we understand the things that God lays in front of us and our hearts aspire to them, and yet we find that we don't do them, Romans chapter 7, the things that I want to do, those things that I don't do, 
then we're ashamed. We're ashamed before God, and shame leads us to be afraid. I don't know whether I'll be in the kingdom is one of the responses that comes from shame. I'm not ready to appear before God. I want to hide from Him. I want to be away from Him. When we're confronted by the awesome majesty of God and we realize our insignificance, we either flee out of fear or we hide. And, and we're not the only ones who feel that way. Isaiah was in a very similar situation. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, he's caught up in a vision into the throne room, and he sees God Most High established there. And he realizes he's there in the presence of heaven. And there in the presence of heaven, his heart quails. And he says, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And what happens is that one of the cherubim takes a coal from the altar and brings it in his vision to him and touches his lips with it, presumably with consequent searing pain in, in, in the vision, I don't know, and says, your sin is atoned for. Don't worry. Be confident. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is, where in Scripture is the doctrine of atonement by coals on the lips? There isn't a doctrine of that. And yet, this is what happens in the vision. So, we have to ask ourselves, is there some secret principle here that just occurs in this one verse? Or is the real issue that this is what Isaiah needed in order to be confident, in order not to be afraid? Some outward mark that showed that he was willing, uh, that, that God was willing to have him there in his presence. And I think that's it. Isaiah was very aware of, of the uncleanness of his lips, the language he, the kind of things he said, the kind of things people around him said. God says, I will take that away. Don't worry about that. I want you here. I want you here in my presence. And so the burning coals come to his lips. And so he's able to be confident. He's able to do the things of God, to respond to God. God says, who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. That fear that he had is overcome. There's a couple of verses in Hebrews we don't have chance to get to, which talk about us entering with confidence. And I'd like you to look at them uh, at your leisure. Hebrews 4.16, Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 22. And I think the, the last one, Hebrews 9, verse 14, is interesting because it talks about cleansing our conscience. We know that we're guilty, we know that we're unworthy, and God works to make us able to come into His presence. And I, even though we're tied on time, I would like to give one more example, which is related to this, the notion of covering. I've heard phrases in the past that Jesus is a covering for sin, or God cannot look on sin. And, and you know that change meter we saw? Vroom! It's gone back to the God problem. It's not that God can't look on sin. That, that's not where the fundamental problem is. The fundamental problem is that we are sinners. And so you might say, well, suppose we put some covering on for our sin so that our sin isn't apparent. Well, what's that? Is it play acting? Is God pretending that we're not sinners when really we are sinners? I think what's going on is that Christ is a covering for our sin in order to give us confidence. God knows exactly who we are. God knows exactly our weaknesses. God's not fooled by a covering. Look at Adam and Eve, Genesis 3. They had sinned. They had realized their spiritual nakedness, which was uh, echoed in their physical nakedness, they tried to cover themselves up with, with fig leaves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And what did they do? They hid themselves because they didn't feel covered. They had tried to cover themselves, and they had realized how inadequate this covering was. 
but it was inadequate from their own point of view. They didn't feel covered. They were ashamed. They were hiding. They were the ones who were afraid of God. And so what God does is He takes skins of an animal and covers them, and He says, look, I have now provided this covering for you, and now they are confident. Now they can actually stand up and be in God's presence and talk with God. And lots of people will make stuff about the the blood being shed. God had to have blood being shed. But again, the change meter has gone back to God. God is working to reassure Adam and Eve. And the death of that animal, in order to provide them with a better covering, was for their sake, not for his sake. It was so that they would be able to come into the presence of God. And that's what he wants of each of us. He's provided His Son so that we will have confidence, so that we will not be ashamed, so that we will come into His presence and we will say that, I know I don't deserve to be here, Father, but You have done so much to provide so that I can be here. Thank You. Thank You for taking care of me. Thank You for drawing me into Your presence. So these are the principles we've seen so far. Jesus was a human being just like us, just like you, just like me. Yet he overcame all temptation. And then his death fundamentally was to change us, not to change anything about God. And what's more, in the death of Christ and in so many other things that happen in Scripture, God is working to reassure us so that we won't run away from him, so that we won't hide from him. We feel inadequate, sure, But he has done all of this so that we will be willing to come into his presence, that we will call him Abba, Father. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.